You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. reading through um, Romans 3, 9 through 20 tonight. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. And uh, happy belated Thanksgiving to you. Hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Really appreciate you being here tonight and uh, worshiping together with us. And uh, if you're new here tonight, I just want to echo Ryan's welcome to you. So glad that you've joined us. And if we can serve you in any way, um, we would be honored to do so. Last summer, uh, my family had the privilege of taking a sabbatical, and uh, we have been in ministry here in Tulsa uh, now for almost 12 years, but last year, we were entering our 11th year in ministry, and it was time to take a break, and so you all, actually, as a church, graciously said, hey, go and take some time off, rest, refresh, get recalibrated for the future and uh, so we, we did that, and one of the things that our coach told us was that we, at the very beginning of the sabbatical, needed to do something to help our bodies and our minds get into the mode of sabbatical. In other words, it wouldn't be enough for us to kind of sort of do the things that we would normally do here even in town. His um, encouragement was like, get out of town and maybe go on vacation and start to really rest and so as we contemplated what that would look like we decided to get out of town and go east and what our plan was was to end up in the mountains of north carolina in the appalachian mountains and so um we we took a few days to get out there but but the goal was ultimately to get to this little mountain house in the the mountains uh, the appalachian mountains in robbins north carolina well, I don't know why I didn't notice this on the map, but uh, as you get about uh, 50 miles or so away from this city, there is a stretch of road that we had to drive that is literally called the Tail of the Dragon. Now, if you are a motorcyclist or a sports car enthusiast, maybe you've heard of this because this is a popular place for those kinds of, of people. But let me just tell you what the tail of the dragon is. The tail of the dragon is 11 miles, and it includes 318 curves. 
And most of those curves are 90 degrees. Now, in my memory, we didn't travel that whole 11 miles. We traveled most of them. I don't remember turning 318 times, but I do remember turning a lot. And honestly, on the way out there, I thought, there has got to be a better way to get to Robbins, North Carolina. And I thought, when we leave Robbins, North Carolina, we ain't coming back this way. We've got to find another way to get home. And so we spent time there. It was a great time and um, saw a lot of stuff and, and rested and just had a great time together as a family. And sure enough, as that part of our trip ended, I began to think about how are we going to not have to drive back through the tail of the dragon. And I really don't know what happened. I don't know if I read the map wrong or if the map themselves, it just wasn't helpful. But we decided to take an alternate route. And to make a long story short, the alternate route did not work. Um, I don't really know what happened and where we ended up, but we kept driving into the boonies of North Carolina to the point where we all kind of had to look at each other and take a big L and just say, we're going to probably have to go back and do what we know, which was the tail of the dragon. So we drove back through those winding roads, those curves, and finally uh, made it back to uh, the main drag which got us home. I mean, we took a few days to get home. We, we stopped off in a couple of places. I was thinking about that this week because we're talking tonight about trajectory. We're, talking, we're gonna talk tonight about directions and, and, and aim. You know, uh, when we were leaving North Carolina to come home, uh, I knew that I didn't want to go through those curvy roads, that trajectory, was going to be too difficult. I, I just I wanted to do something easier, and and uh, ended up what we chose to do didn't work anyways, and we had to go back back through it. And uh, I, I just I was just so frustrated because the trajectory that I wanted I didn't take. It actually really affected us as a family. It wasted time and energy, uh, made our trip longer. It, made, it, took, it took us longer to get home, and, and the trajectory for you in your driving matters, right? You've got to know where you're going so that you can be efficient, not waste time. And so if you want to get home, the aim, the directions that you take matter. The same is true for our spiritual lives. If you want to get to your spiritual home, you have to be on the right trajectory. It's possible for us, even as Christians, to be on the wrong trajectory, the wrong aim and find ourselves actually moving away from God. Your trajectory spiritually matters as well. Tonight we are continuing a series in the book of Romans. We're looking at the first 11 chapters of this great book called Reign of God, or Reign of Grace, excuse me, is the name of the series. And we're looking at the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the grace of God in the redemption of his people through the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's through that kingship that we're exploring that we are hoping that you experience in real time his reign of grace, his reign of mercy, his reign of, of love in your life. And we are praying that we would experience it together as a church. And as we enter into our passage tonight in Romans 3, 9 through 20, I really just want to invite you to see one thing tonight. And it's this, 
The trajectory of unrepentant sin is one of hopelessness. The trajectory of unrepentant sin is one of hopelessness. So look with me if you would, beginning there in verse 9. And that's where we're going to begin tonight, work our way all the way through this passage you heard Ashlyn read moments ago. Paul first responds here in verse 9 to another rhetorical question regarding Jewishness, which again, if you were here last week, you know that Paul spent some time doing that very thing last week. And uh, verse 9, he says this. Let me just say this again, read it again. What then, are we Jews better off? Now, this should again sound familiar because last week we saw Paul tackle the objection that some might think that Jewishness is not important. And as we said last week, that is likely an odd thing for you, for us to wrestle with because it's in our Christian Bibles that, that Paul is talking about Jewishness. Spiritually speaking, you and I come from a line of Gentiles, not Jews, those outside of God's original covenant but grafted into God's family through faith in Christ. So why does Paul seem to continue to want to address Jewishness here? Well, I said this a little bit last week, and I'm just going to reiterate it again this week, but Paul, who himself is a former Jewish Pharisee, is an evangelist at heart. Now that God had redeemed him through the gospel, he wants to see that same gospel reach out to both the Jew and the Gentile. And though he is primarily addressing Jewish people here in Romans 3, he very quickly is going to turn to say both the Jew and the Gentile are in need of Jesus. But Paul is, is just, he has a missional mindset. He is desiring to, even in our time, with, with, when Jewish people, Orthodox Jews read this, for them to be confronted with the reality that they need Jesus, who, by the way, again, Orthodox Jews, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, so isn't it missional? Isn't it an evangelist heart to say to someone, hey, you need to get your thoughts right about who Jesus is? And Paul wants to challenge the Jew here, continue to challenge the Jew here, but he's very quickly going to turn and, and challenge both the Jew and the Gentile. In particular, in the first part of Romans 3 that we looked at last week, Paul was wanting to challenge the Jew to not assume salvation because of their Jewish lineage, their Abrahamic ancestry, or their covenant with God. Again, those are things that we could also just say categorically for all of us, we, we, we should be really careful not to assume salvation because of of something, you know, about like where we're from or who we come from, right? Those are works. Those are things that, that are, uh, uh, make really the gospel null and void. But he's also wanting to challenge the Jews to uh, not think that they are somehow greater uh, in value to, to God because they're uh, covenanted with God in a unique way. They happen to be God's chosen people. He doesn't want them to think some sort of superiority thing is in play here. So he's wanting to continue to challenge them. So after the first eight verses of Romans 3, talking about some of the ways that being Jewish is advantageous, he begins to now ask this question, though, does that mean that Jews are better off? 
He immediately answers his own question. Look there in verse 9. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, and here's the, the, the place where he begins to talk to all of us, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Here's what Paul is saying. The Jews had the advantage of promises, but not freedom from guilt. Paul is saying, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So to be under sin, which is what this verse says here in verse 9, uh, it means that sin has a power over all people, no matter where you come from, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your ancestry is. Even if God has made some sort of a unique promise like he did with the Jewish people, that in and of itself does not save. Now, Paul is going to turn to three ways that this spiritual condition, this being under sin, affects humanity. And there's three, three ways that it affects humanity. One, it's our relationship with God. It's second, our relationship with others. And it's also, he's going to talk about the way that being under sin affects our culture and our society. So first, look with me, if you would, there, verse 10. Uh, 12, Paul is going to use this phrase, not one or no one, five different times. What Paul is doing is driving a point home and saying, our sinful rebellion is universal, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. This rejection of God has consequences, and it begins to show that there is a failure in humanity that's not just a personal individual failure, but it is a corporate problem, a corporate failure. And Paul is first diagnosing how our condition has damaged our relationship with God. And by the way, that's the most serious one. He's starting with the most serious one first. For our relationship to be severed with God because of our sin is a big problem for us. It's the biggest problem. It's your biggest need for that to be made right. And Paul says none is righteous. It means no one stands before God in a spiritually right condition in their own selves. Every single one of you is accountable to God. He says no one understands. Our primary failure is spiritual opposition to God. Our natural orientation is to not seek God. He goes on to say, all have turned away or aside. Our depravity expresses itself in turning away from the very thing that is, should be the source of, of salvation and hope for us. He says, then also they have become worthless. The consequence of this turning is that you and I have become corrupt. That, that word worthless is heavy, right? Theologian William Barclay says it this way, human nature without Christ is a soured and useless thing. Lastly, Paul says, no one does good. In other words, our evil deeds come from a foundational spiritual bankruptcy. Being under sin means that humans have ruined their relationships with God. Now, second, Paul shows us how this unrighteousness affects our relationship with other people. In particular, and this should be, I'm so amazed at how relevant the Bible is sometimes. In particular, what comes out of our mouths. 
Look there beginning in verse 13. Paul starts. look like someone has passed away maybe they've even been passed away for a a bit if the grave was open what would you see you would be seeing a decaying body there is nothing attractive about that image and that is Paul's point then he goes on to say that they use their tongues to deceive he's continually talk about this this idea of what comes out of our mouths This means that because of us being under sin, we use our words to propagate things that are untrue. You can think of things like lies or things like gossip, but I think it also can refer to things like flattery, which sounds nice, but is also false. Paul's not done, though. Look there at the end of verse 13. He says that our words are deadly. They are poison they have a poison like quality to them the venom of asps is under their lips you ever seen a a, a video of, a, of a, a a snake that's striking right the way that Paul is describing it here is that it's as if this poison is just lurking behind our lips ready to spit out that deadly poison quickly and then finally Paul says that these sins of the tongue are regretfully numerous life is full of relational conflict you guys know that there's verbal injury there's all kinds of ways that we hurt people with our words why because look there at verse 14 the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness the mouth is overflowing with simple things because mankind is under sin and that sin affects our relationships with other people Now third, Paul expands his diagnosis even further to show that our entire culture is affected by this condition of being under sin. Look there in verse 15. From world history to family history, you don't have to look very hard to see that our culture can turn very quickly into a very ugly and dangerous place. You could argue it just is an ugly and dangerous place. And that's why the text says here their feet are swift to shed blood you don't even have to look uh, a w- past a week ago to see examples of this in our own country where blood innocent blood has been shed but friends that is a the issue that sin has infected in our entire society we are prone to inflict pain on each other Notice the next phrase, in their paths are ruin and misery. This is not a statement of of personal condition of individual people, but it's a statement about the track record of the devastation that you and I leave behind us in culture. It's a trail littered with self-destruction. And finally, he says, the way of peace they have not known. See, the typical pattern of human history is... Not peace, but war, conflict, violence. Human culture is away from peace and towards those things. Now, all of this leads us to Paul's conclusion of this section. And he's, what he's going to do here, in verse, beginning in verse 18, is summarize what he just said to help drive his point home. So look with me, if you would. He's going to do it in two ways. First, 
there in verse 18 again, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, so this is a summary statement that Paul is making about what he just talked about in verses 9 through 17. Now, we've talked about the fear of the Lord here before, and, and we just need to say again, Paul isn't talking about emotional fear here, like being afraid of God. He's talking about the biblical concept of the fear of God. Now, all through the Bible, in places like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, a lot of the wisdom literature, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does that mean? It means that until you revere God and are in awe of God and, and, and worship Him for who He is, which is what fearing God means, biblically, you can't think straight about reality. You won't have a wisdom about reality. And he's saying for you, if, if, if you are characterized by verses 9 through 17, you can't begin to think straight about reality because you have no fear of God before you. He said, because there is no fear, your reality is going to be skewed. There is no wisdom for you, and thus, no righteousness. Paul is reminding us here that the basic problem of humanity is to deny God the glory that he is due, which is just another way of saying we don't fear God the way that we should. Paul has already said this in Romans 1 when he said, they do not honor him as God. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. See, we don't just have a sin problem, friends. We have a worship problem. We don't have just a theological problem. We have a doxological problem. We love the wrong things. And we demonstrate our disregard for God by doing what we want to do. At its very core, that's what sin is. Sin is living as if God doesn't matter. And this unmistakable absence of fear of God is the stamp that is on humanity. It's the stamp that's on your heart. It's the stamp that's on mine. It's our greatest problem. It's mine. But it's also society's greatest issue. It's what separates us from God. Now, the second summary statement that Paul makes, he makes in verse 19, and he relates it to the judgment that will come at the end of the days. And Paul is saying that the law was given not only to the Jew, but to everyone to show God's righteousness, but also to show you that you can never measure up to it. And this failure on our part to measure up to the standards of following the law have consequences. It means that you and I are going to be held accountable before God, and it will be so clear that that, that this accountability has to be there, that every mouth will be stopped, it says. There will be no debate because the case will be clear-cut. We are guilty. And then in verse 20, Paul says that the final judgment will be based upon the fact that human actions are not able to produce true righteousness. That should be a chilling reminder for all of us. Let me just say that again. Paul is saying that the final judgment will be based upon the fact that human actions are not able to produce righteousness. In fact, the point of this whole section is that human activity only results in more failure. 
Paul's message to all of us is complete in this section. There is no spiritual hope in yourself. Here's the one thing that I want to invite you to see tonight. The trajectory of unrepentant sin is one of hopelessness. Look there at verse 11 again. Paul says that no one seeks God. Like if you're here tonight and you say, no, Brad, I'm the exception. I seek after God. Look, I, I, for some of you here tonight that are believers, I understand what you might mean by that. You desire to seek after God. Boy, I hope that you do, actually. But Paul is reminding us here of a reality that left to our own devices, no one seeks God. And if we're honest, as believers even, we don't seek God the way that we should. Now what Paul is talking about here is, listen, a direction, a trajectory or an aim. He is talking about um, the direction that you're headed in life, the, the, the seeking, right? When you seek something, you're seeking something, you're headed towards that very thing. And Paul is saying, you don't seek God. He's saying your aim is off. Your trajectory is off. You are not going to find your spiritual home in your own strength. And he's actually saying it's not whether you're doing bad things or good things. Sin is mainly a matter of what you're doing, you're doing for. Sin makes you want to get away from God, not go towards Him, to get out from under His gaze, His control. It's being your own Lord. That's the trajectory, the direction of unrepentant sin. It's away from God. Now, there are a couple of ways to do this. One way is to live any way you want. To be your own ruler, to be your own Lord. Some call this being a law unto oneself. In other words, the law that you live by is that you don't live by a law, which ironically is a law. The other is to try to be very good, to go to church, to obey the Bible, do everything you possibly can, even try to be like Jesus so that God has to bless you. So that God has to save you. So that God has to stay with you and you're in his good graces. In that case, I hate to break this to you, but you're not seeking God either. You're seeking things from him. It's also away from God. See, friends, unless the Holy Spirit comes into your life to change your heart, nobody serves God for God. Nobody is really seeking God. They're seeking things from God, whether that's freedom from Him or, or blessing or salvation from Him. And listen, by the way, it doesn't mean that nobody does good things. I'm not saying that there aren't such things as virtuous deeds, but Paul is talking about the heart here. We're, we're talking about, when we talk about the heart, we're actually talking about direction. We're talking about trajectory and aim. Nobody seeks of man is what's making this world a wreck. You can even be running from God in your own good deeds. 
and this doesn't save you. It actually takes you away from the actual Savior. But I want to ask you tonight, how are you running away from God? Maybe your answer is, it is sin that I'm going to. Let me ask you, how is that going? Are you tired? Are you confused? Do you find your, yourself um, struggling with your, your faith? Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. And you would say, Brad, I, I, uh, I see what you're talking about. I'm, I am doing my, I'm trying to do my own saving. I'm trying to be my own king, my own Lord. It's not working. Good news, friends, for, for you is you can trade your exhaustion for grace tonight. Because the reality is, for those of us that, that may be running away from God because we're trying to be good, we need to repent of that. Because the trajectory of sin is one of hopelessness, whether it's repenting from bad things or good things. Now, if we stopped right here this week, you and I would be in a desperate situation. Hearing that there is no spiritual hope in you, you might be prone to think that there is no cure for you. Now, we're going to begin to look at this a little bit more next week, but you can begin to see, starting in verse 21, that, that Paul begins to open us up to the answer to our hopelessness. And I'm just going to, these are the first few words of verse That you can't receive the cure for your sin unless you realize and admit that you can't fix yourself. That you realize that even trying to fix yourself makes you worse. Because every effort that you and I try to put, you know, together for our, ourselves and try to be a better person and try harder is really just another way to justify ourselves or to save ourselves. But I want to leave you with the good news of the gospel, friends, tonight. Because, because you don't see God, because I don't see God, because we as a society don't see God, the good news of the gospel is that salvation comes from God seeking you. See, there are a lot of religions that say human beings can find God and you know, seek Him, find Him. Just try hard enough, you can find Him. It's like God sitting there and saying, here are the rules and here are all the things you need to do. If you pick them up and you do them, I'm, I'm sure you can find me. In other words, in most religions, salvation is you finding God. But in Christianity, it's the opposite. Salvation is God seeking and finding you. The salvation of the gospel is God seeking us, finding us, coming to us at an infinite cost to himself. Austin, his son, Jesus. God himself sought us because we didn't seek him. He had to do it. Because if he had sat and waited for us to come and find him, we never would have. Friends, the objective work of Jesus on the cross has opened a way for us. The cross was God's way of seeking you. So if you're here tonight and you would say, I... I don't know what that, you're, you're saying God is seeking me, he's pursuing me. Yes, look to the cross. The cross is God's way of pursuing you. 
And the first step towards believing in Jesus for the first time tonight or applying that belief in a fresh way after you've received him is embracing the hopelessness of living by you and for you. That's part of what Paul is trying to do here in Romans. He's trying to bring us to the end of ourselves to see our only hope is Jesus. The second step is to turn away from yourself and to turn to the cross. Because at the cross we see God pursuing us. It's where God imputes his righteousness through Jesus to our spiritual bank account. First and foremost, he repairs what sin has damaged in our relationship with him. We said that's our biggest issue. That's our most pressing spiritual problem. God in his work on the cross through his son Jesus has repaired what sin has damaged there. He reconciles us back to himself and we can be forgiven of our unrighteousness both at the moment of our salvation and in an ongoing way in sanctification. But there's more good news. He can begin to reverse the other things that relationships with other people. Even in a culture that is more and more so turning its back to God, we can find pockets of of, of redemption in, in God doing this, reversing sin in our society. We can play a part in that. The hope and the power of the gospel is that God can, through the righteousness of Jesus, change your heart, change your relationships, and even change the culture around you. The righteousness that God gives us addresses the core issue in humanity that has spread its deadly poison into every arena of life. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that it places us in Christ when you and I were under sin. The gospel has the power to renew what sin has ruined. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. Have you come to the end of your rope? Have you admitted that you have been living by you and for you? If so, that's the first step. That's, that's part of the process. But friends, let's, as we continue to worship tonight and enter into a time of communion, let's make that second move, turn to the cross where we see Jesus pursuing us. Let's pray.